This morning, we're going to be looking a little bit at the amazing, awesome subject of God's grace. But before we turn to God's word, I'm going to pray and ask that God speaks to us, each one of us, this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we only know anything about you because you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. I thank you that your word is one of the key ways in which you reveal yourself to us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal more of yourself to each one of us through the proclamation of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So would you like to turn, if you have Bibles with you, uh, to the book of Romans? And we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 to 2. So quite a short passage, but I can tell you there's a lot in this. So we're not going to have enough time to, to even scratch the service this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, the words are going to come up on the screen. So, Romans 5, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. As I've been thinking and, and praying about this morning, I felt that it was really important that I speak to you on the subject of the grace of God. It's a subject I'm sure many of us are very familiar with. Many of you will have read whole books on God's grace. And it's unusual for even a minute in church to go by without somebody mentioning the expression, the grace of God. And after all, this is Grace Church Nottingham. But I wonder how many of us really grasp what the grace of God means to us individually, how radical it is, how outrageous it is, even occasionally how offensive it can seem at times. But a biblical understanding of grace is vital if we are to live the lives God wants for each one of us. Grace is God's answer. It's God's answer to a rebellious world full of sin, intent on self-destruction. Grace is God's answer to Christians who are struggling with their own sense of failure, their own sense of low self-esteem. Grace is God's answer even to those who've wandered away from their faith, who've become demoralized and cynical with the church. This morning, I want to really focus in on grace. Have we really understood it? Do we realize how amazing, outrageous, controversial, and wonderful God's grace is really? Well, let's start with what it means. What exactly is grace? Simply, grace is the completely undeserved favor of God. Grace is something that is given. It's never earned. 
It's the result of God's amazing love for each and every one of us. Grace is the thing that perhaps more than anything else comes closest to revealing God's heart. Grace is free of charge to people like you and me who absolutely don't deserve it. Grace never excuses sin, but it treasures those who do sin. True grace is shocking. It's scandalous. It seems to run against our sense of natural justice. But grace is also really powerful. It's a powerful weapon in spiritual warfare. It's a powerful weapon in reaching out to the world, especially when we're trying to reach to those that the world despises or the world ignores. Grace should be our motivator in witnessing to those around us, just as it's God's motivator in sending Jesus to die for us. About 10 years ago, Jeanette and I had been invited to a wedding. It was the wedding of my cousin. And he was marrying a a girl whose mother was a peer of the realm. And as a result, the wedding took place in the chapel of the Undercroft under the uh, Palace of Westminster. Being 10 years ago, it was shortly after the... uh, uh, two bombings, I don't know if you remember, in uh, 2005. And there was, at the time, quite a sense of fear in the city of London. As a result, there was huge amounts of security wherever you went, particularly around the houses of Westminster and Parliament. And we were all very conscious of this very tight security. We arrived and stood on the road outside the Palace of Westminster together with a whole crowd of other tourists trying to make our way in. There was a gate that we were supposed to enter, and it was being guarded by several imposing-looking policemen, all of whom were carrying weapons. But we had our wedding invitations clutched in our hands, and we were confident that these were going to grant us access through this security gate to get inside the Palace of Westminster. No one else in the crowds among us had similar pieces of card. But these wedding invitations, like magic, the policeman allowed us, after looking at them, to go through and enter the building. And just as we could enter a very security-tight House of Lords through the wedding invitations, So in the same way as Christians, we have access to something actually much more special and wonderful. And that thing is God's grace. And the person who grants us access is Jesus. So in the passage that we've just read, Romans 5, 1 to 2, Paul says, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So God has provided the one who can give us access to grace. We'll remember for a long time our visit to the House of Lords, but it was only a brief visit, just lasted a couple of hours. 
Jesus has brought us to a place where we will stand for all time. We stand in grace through the access he's gained for us. Jesus not only rescues us from God's wrath, he not only forgives us our sins, but he's obtained for us a place to stand in grace. A place where we can stand in full security without fear of disqualification or without fear of being removed forcibly. His credentials, Jesus' credentials, have removed all the barriers that stood in our way. But having gained entry, having, to, having come into this relationship, we have to choose to stand in God's grace. You've probably come across several passages in the Bible that talk about living victoriously or reigning in life. Here are a few examples of that sort of thing. Romans 5:17 says, "For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ." We should be reigning in life. 2 Corinthians 2:14 says, "But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So Jesus is leading us in triumphal procession. Romans 8, verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I don't know about you, but for me... When I read those passages, they seem to have a slightly hollow ring to them. They don't really measure up to my own personal experiences of life. Yet these verses describe what should be the normal Christian life. Not the life of some spiritual giant, but ordinary people like you and me. The trouble is, these passages can often leave us feeling condemned rather than encouraged, knowing we fall very far short of what is promised. Too often we feel we're losers rather than winners. We're overruled rather than reigning, at the mercy of depression and dejection and a sense of unworthiness before God. In fact, let's face it, rather condemned. If only I could reign in life as I'm supposed to, as it says here, we start to feel. Perhaps after a particularly inspirational preach in church, we might feel we want to make a fresh start. We're determined to start again. We're going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to pray more regularly. We're going to start to witness to our colleagues at work every day. We're going to start to read through the Bible in the year. We set ourselves goals and targets to achieve something something the world does in response to failure, as though that were the answer. But I have to tell you that although goal-setting and targets may be the government's answer to struggling schools or failing hospitals, it's never God's answer. It has never been God's answer. You may enjoy a few good days, but I can guarantee 
that before too long, the targets and standards that you set yourself, you'll fail on. And before long, you'll already feel condemned. You're already a few days behind in your Bible readings. You've slept through your prayer time. And even when you do manage to get up, you found you've no real motivation. You've no good sense of fellowship with God. And you're left with a dreadful feeling that you're really not quite sure how to pray anyway. Where have you gone wrong? Why is it so difficult to live the Christian life? Well, one of the problems is that as Christians, it's really easy for us to fall into the trap of imposing laws upon ourselves. It's something that mankind has always been good at doing. Let me just read verse 17 again. Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance and grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see, if we look carefully at what Romans 5.17 says about reigning in life, it doesn't actually speak about our spiritual work rate. It doesn't speak about our personal endeavors. It certainly doesn't speak about Christians imposing laws upon themselves, which they can't keep to. In fact, it says exactly the opposite. It says that through receiving the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, note, we should note here, it's a gift of righteousness, not a target. We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This confusion that, to be honest, we all can fall into, often has roots in our very earliest experiences when, became, when we became a Christian. Sometimes through some rather misguided attempts at discipleship. When you come to Christ, you hear for the first time, Jesus died for sinners, and you can come to God for forgiveness just as you are. Hooray! All your sins are washed away. Hallelujah! you can know that God has accepted you. You can be assured of eternal life. So you invited Jesus to be your saviour. You're born again and your joy knows no bounds. This is what you've been looking for for years. But then you're taken aside by a counsellor who wants to pass on some very important information. Namely, that now you're a Christian, it's very important that you do certain things and that you refrain from doing other things. You need to read your Bible every day. You need to spend a certain amount of time praying. You might like to consider changing your clothes. And I apologize for the shirt, by the way. <laughs> and maybe where you spend your time. The rules vary from place to place and from church to church. But in reality, many people find that the lightening of their load is quickly replaced by the imposition of a new load. Yes, you've found freedom, but you've also found a whole lot of new rules to live by. Sadly, for many, 
They sense that their enjoyment of Christianity and their success as a Christian will have a lot to do with their ability to follow these new rules. The new Christian quickly becomes acquainted with two companions that are going to accompany him or her throughout their Christian life. Unworthiness and inadequacy. We reign in life by receiving abundant grace, not by putting ourselves under laws. We reign in life because of our position in Christ, not because of our performance for Christ. Let me repeat that because that is so important. We reign in life because of our position in Christ, not our performance for Christ. Paul makes our relationship to the law very clear in the opening passage of Romans chapter 7. Maybe we can have that up on the, ward, on, 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 the, on the screen as well. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. She's no longer married to him. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Yeah, fairly straightforward. Likewise, many brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In this passage, Paul is describing his readers as if they are married to the law. The law is pictured as a stern, overbearing husband from which there is no escape. Since you're married to the law, you simply can't choose another husband because that would be adultery. You cannot simply choose to become part of the bride of Christ and claim Jesus as your husband because you've already got a husband, namely the law who has absolute authority over you while both you and he live. His repeated clear commands make his requirements very clear and leave you very conscious of your constant failure to meet his standards. But this husband, the law, seems to offer you very little in the way of help. He simply shows you your error and where you fall down. He's an unattractive husband since although his standards are high and he continually brings them to your attention, he never lifts a finger to help you. He merely stands, rock-like, carved in stone, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. There's no point in arguing with him because you know in your heart of hearts he's right. His standards are pure and holy and you can't find fault in them. And they even seem strangely attractive, but they're oh so out of reach. So here you find yourselves enslaved in, 
to an unforgiving husband for whom you can never escape. And as if to rub it in, Jesus said the law shall never pass away. So the law's not going to die. Your overbearing husband is never going to die. You're trapped forever in a loveless marriage, enslaved to feeling condemned. The door of hope has been slammed in your face. What a terrible prospect. But then Paul turns the argument on its head. Instead of you waiting for your husband to die, the law, which is never going to happen, Paul declares not that the law will pass away, but through the death of Christ, or more particularly through the death of his body, you have now died to the law. Although the law will never die, by identifying yourself with Christ, by believing in his shed blood and redemption, you are now freely justified and are in Christ. When we're in Christ, from God's perspective, we are said to have died with him. And if we're indeed dead, we are no longer bound by marriage to our former husband, the law. We're free to take Jesus as our new husband, and we're freed from our former husband and his control. So we have now, once and for all, died to the law. Do you realize that? That you've died to the law. In fact, now that we are no longer bound to our former husband, to go back to him and act like he was still our husband would be a bit like committing adultery. Paul says that having died to the law, we're now joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We're not set free from our loveless marriage to the law in order to be young, free, and single, but to be married to Jesus, the bridegroom, powerfully alive from the dead, as we were celebrating last Sunday. We can now run into the arms of a totally new kind of husband, full of grace and kindness. The old husband, the law, was powerless to help us. Bearing fruit was simply not on offer. He could only point out our shortcomings. But Jesus can change you from the inside. His words are spirit and life. Reigning in life by standing in grace become real possibilities if you don't have to return to the law. We'll never reign in life and be free from condemnation if we do not wholeheartedly embrace the free gift of righteousness. We need to enjoy the liberty of being a child of God, thoroughly accepted, not on the basis of our present performance as a law keeper, even if we dreamt up those laws ourselves, but thoroughly on the basis of his gift of righteousness, fully reckoned to our own account. At this point, I just want to quickly point out and explain two theological words you'll often hear banded around. The first is justification. Justification means the process by which we are made justified or acceptable to God. The second word is sanctification. That's the process by which we gradually, from becoming a Christian, become more like Jesus. And the important thing that our, is that our standing before God 
solely depends on our justification and never on how sanctified we've become. You see, the devil would love to get us confused on this. He would point to you and say, you're not behaving like a Christian today. You haven't had your quiet time. When was the last time you were at a prayer meeting? And he wants to try and convince you that it's your sanctification, your performance that matters, whereas in fact that's rubbish. What matters is your justification, your standing before God in Christ. God has given you thorough acceptance in his sight, not because of your changed life, but because of his good pleasure in giving you the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' righteousness is real. It's not some abstract concept. He He walked the earth and he never sinned. He never needed to ask his father for forgiveness. He never regretted a foolish word or sinful act. He never had to say sorry to God or to man. For over 30 years, Jesus lived a life of perfect choices. He lived a life of righteous acts, of compassionate goodness. A thoroughly righteous life was lived by a thoroughly righteous man. And his righteousness has been completely credited to us. He knowingly took your sin from you and gave you his righteousness. You see, we can't be condemned and justified at the same time. Satan is nothing if not predictable. He uses the same old weapons time and time again. Accusation. But if we stand behind the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, his accusations can't touch us. He'll try and lure us into defending ourselves with our sanctification, but that weapon will fail miserably. We need to stand behind our shield of faith and protected by the breastplate of Jesus' righteousness. We have to accept and keep reminding ourselves that we are thoroughly accepted, just as we are. Your righteousness is in Christ, not in what you get up to. And though we may run hot and cold in our enthusiasm for him, though we may have times of being on fire and times of backsliding, he is never going to change. He's, your sa- he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you wake tomorrow, he will still be your righteousness before you've done anything to deserve God's favor. And at the end of the day, he will still be your righteousness despite all your failings and all the sin that you have committed that day. You have nothing to earn. And indeed, there is nothing you can earn to add to God's grace. It is, in the words of the song, unending, unfailing, unlimited, unmerited. We need to bask in the brilliant sunshine of the grace of God. We need to know it inwardly and celebrate it on a daily basis. Let the wonder of God's grace overwhelm you. Let his grace set you free. Let it bring a deep sense of his total acceptance of you just as you are.